Let's turn to Ephesians, please. Well, first of all, Matthew 27. Matthew 27. I didn't really teach Victoria how to sing a cappella like that. You did that all on your own, right? With the help of the Lord, right? Yes. Matthew 27, 44. Ephesians. Anywhere. One correction. I have to make accuracy is my goal, so. Last week I, off the cuff, gave four commands regarding our total commitment to the Lord. And they include presenting our body to the Lord as a living sacrifice, which is the primary sacrifice of our priesthood, Romans 12.1. Committing or entrusting our souls to a faithful creator, which is especially important in perilous times that we have now in history. That's First Peter 4.19. Read the context of that, too, which is... First Peter. Then there is Psalm 31 5, which Jesus cited from the heart on the cross. Into your hands I entrust my spirit. So we have the body, the soul, the spirit. The last one I have to correct. I said Proverbs 426 in the heat of the moment. It's actually Proverbs 2326. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. And this rounds out the four parts of total commitment to God for 2020. And I think especially Psalm 31.5, especially as conferred with Luke 23.46, into your hands, I entrust my spirit. I always say that before every message. And believe it or not, I entrust the corporate spirit of Tetelestai Phalanx into his hands, too, into his care, and give you to him that he may teach us, and be, that we may be taught by God. John 6.45, conferring with Isaiah 54.13. And with this in mind, I think once in a while as a pastor, it's important to communicate some of the things that we go through because it isn't just about studying and teaching. It's about going through a spiritual history with the Lord. And the past few weeks I've done that. And each time it seems a little darker, the territory seems a little dimmer and darker. You go through it, but that's Isaiah 50 and verse 10, who is my servant, but him who walks in darkness and has no light. There's times when we go through that and you will too. And you have, And at that time, I had nothing. I had nothing to, I understood nothing, I saw nothing, I knew nothing. And I realized at that moment that there was kind of a roll at the end of the year. Well, I got this message, I got this message, and this is, wow, that insight, and this follows this, and it seems to be an easy flow. But in the moments of darkness, or it was kind of an extended period of it, A still small voice, and still small means too soft to be a whisper. An inaudible, eternal voice simply said, without me, you can do nothing. 
And I realize that this is all about his doing. It's all about his action. It's all about God's actions in us. And so I don't take for granted when he gives me a message or when he points the way. I was ready to roll up like the universe, the mystery series. After 10, I said, well, 10 is perfect. And the still small voice, not in so many words, but with somewhat of a strong assurance said, you're not done with the mystery. So here we are, part 11, the doctrine of the mystery. And I want to start by calling it the mystery in toto. You've heard me say the term, but I've never really titled the message that yet. The mystery, Latin term, in toto. We would say totally, or the total mystery. The mystery in its fullness, in its completeness, in its totality. And that's what I want to talk about again today. And we'll go to Ephesians ultimately. Now, there is a show, I keep seeing it, advertise once in a while called this is us i guess it's supposed to be based in pittsburgh it's supposed to be a tearjerker which means i'll never watch it never have yet never probably will i i i tear up during the saint jude hospital commercials and that's that's i can't handle those and so we pam and i have been supporting that hospital for a long time kids with cancer just I can't that's enough for me on the tears so I don't watch that show and incidentally I want to say also because of various challenges we haven't been able to do a lot of cards including thank you cards this year so I want to for Pam and I both thank all of you for all of your the cards you sent us the wishes you expressed the gifts and the generosity that you've shown us during the Christmas holiday, which you sure don't have to do. And our thanks also extends more so even for your faithfulness to let the word of Christ reside in your hearts richly as all of you have. And I, I'm very grateful for my coworkers in this ministry and for all those who lend their gifts to the smooth operation of this ministry and their self-sacrificing service which I'm very aware of throughout the year, but I just want to mention that today and just express my gratitude. The mystery in toto. I'll tell you what is us. I'll tell you where this is us. It's right here in Matthew twenty-seven forty-four. In the same way, even the robbers who were crucified together with him began heaping insults on him. The word crucified together is the Greek word S-U-S-T-A-U. Note this little root word, R, Omicron O, Omega O, Sustarao, crucified with him. This is us. We're crucified with him. You please notice that we are not saved because we repented. We're not saved because we were sorry for our sins. We were not saved because like one of these thieves who eventually turned around, asked Jesus to remember him. We're not saved because we asked Jesus to remember us when he comes into his kingdom. We were saved 
because we were crucified with Jesus Christ. And that's the only salvation. And when one died, for all, all died. This is us. This is also us, U.S. This is universal salvation. They were crucified together with him while they were heaping insults on him. And they were saved because they were crucified with him. We shouldn't get the idea that one who didn't stop insulting him and died is any better off than the one who said, remember me. We don't know why he said, remember me, when you come into your kingdom. He might have just been closing some loopholes. He might have just been saying, well, it's a win-win. If he is this, let me ask him to help me out here. Or as one famous movie star was asked one time, I see you're reading the Bible. And he said, looking for loopholes. Who knows why he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But we weren't saved because we asked to be remembered. We weren't saved because we asked Jesus into our lives, our hearts, or asked for forgiveness, or went down an aisle, or marched down an aisle, or gave up our habits and our addictions. We were crucified with Jesus. That's why. I don't frustrate the grace of God, Paul said, because if justification comes by the works of the law or any other works, then Christ has died for nothing. And that puts justification together with crucifixion with Christ. I was crucified with Christ, Paul said. Nevertheless, I live. And yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God and in participation with the continuing faithfulness of the Son of God, a faithfulness that continues in us as a fruit of the Spirit. This is us right here in Matthew 27, 44. We died with him. We live with him. We were crucified with him. We are justified when he was raised. And our justification is our co-crucifixion. Now, this series, the main point of what is being said, as we've said before, is that God has made known to us the mystery. This is in itself a wonderfully gracious act of God, that he's made known to us the mystery of his will. And that the mystery of his will is to sum up all things and all beings in Christ. The main point of what's being said in a cross-pollination of this doctrinal series and our theological series that we haven't gotten to for a while is that this summing up of all things and all beings in Christ in the heavens and earth is the universal objective of the divine missions, which are the divine processions and the divine persons, the triune God, acting toward a divine objective. The divine objective of the two divine missions, first the mission of the Son, secondly the mission of the Spirit, is the summing up, the gathering in and summing up of all created reality in Christ in whom all divine reality is already 
embodied and summed up so that God will be all in all. That God made known to us the mystery of his great intention, as it's called in Isaiah 9.5 in the Greek text, means that he's granted us a created participation in uncreated light. Any insight God gives to us is the result of a created participation of uncreated light. For God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. The Logos of God, which is himself God in John 1.1, ultimately enlightens every person. The Logos enlightens every person, according to John 1.9, coming into the world. And so every person who's ever come into the world will ultimately be enlightened Ephesians 3 9 says something similar only Paul says it's my job to enlighten every person as to the mystery every person will eventually come in fact to the unity of faith says Ephesians 4 13 and to the knowledge of the son of God which is the knowledge of the truth God is not only willing that all be saved, but that all come to the knowledge of the truth. And we are assured that all will come to the knowledge of the truth that is embodied in the Son of God. Ephesians 4.13 compared with 1 Timothy 2.4. That too is the knowledge of the knowledge surpassing love of Christ. That's what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 5.14. Now the love of Christ has mastered me. Now it controls me and dominates me. For if one died for all, then all died. And that's what motivated the love of God. That's what released the love of God or the love of Christ in Paul. The knowledge surpassing love of Christ. So this created participation of uncreated light is what we like to call insight. Insight is our created participation of uncreated light. According to the Apostle Paul, the mystery was made known to him by an apocalypse, a term that we found to be familiar last year. Apocalypse, kata apocalypsin, he says. By revelation, we could say by a pure divine disclosure. In Galatians, Paul said similarly that the gospel was made known to him by an apocalypse, a disclosure, a divine, shocking revelation. Galatians 1.12. And he said, when God was pleased to reveal his son in me, he did. It's not a matter of when you're pleased. It's a matter when God's pleased, he reveals his son to you and in you. Galatians 1.12 and 1.16. In Ephesians 6.19, the mystery made known by an apocalypse and the gospel made known by an apocalypse are joined in one entity. It's called ta musterion tu euangeliu, the mystery of the gospel. So in Ephesians 3, let's turn there for a moment. This is our key word today. 
I like to just maybe on Sundays just key in on one key Greek term, norizo. Just starting to learn how to do Z's. Norizo, G-N-O, long O, R. That's an R. I-Z-O. O is Omicron O. Both of them are Omicron O. Norizo. The mystery was made known, Paul said to me, by revelation, apocalypse, as I have written briefly before. Now, that little phrase, as I've written briefly before, I was reading an exegete who said, we don't know where he wrote about it before. Perhaps there's a lost epistle. Perhaps there's something that he wrote before that we don't know about. But there's no mystery about where Paul had written briefly about the mystery. He had briefly written about the mystery in Ephesians 1, 9 through 11 where he wrote, quote, of the mystery of God's will, which is to sum up everything, ana kephalaiao, bring everything under the head of Christ. This is the mystery in toto. This is the total mystery. The mystery in its totality. The verb norizo is used in 1, 8, and 9 of Ephesians to describe the action of God on and in us, the saints, lavishing his grace upon us along with all wisdom and insight. It's his making known, gnorizo, the mystery. In other words, God makes it intelligible to us, understandable to us, because God himself is intelligence, with a capital I. God himself is the act of unrestricted understanding. He makes the mystery known to us, making Jesus known to us to us because our minds are the created participation in the mind of the creator. We have the mind of Christ. God grants us a created participation of uncreated light. The best verse for that is John 1, 9. But it's also taken up in a prayer by the apostle for all of us in Ephesians 1, 17 and 18 and following. The most precious knowledge is that which God makes known to us. Not what Fox makes known to us or CNN makes known to us or a friend makes known to us about another friend or about an enemy. The most precious knowledge is that which God makes known to us. This is Blessed knowledge. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Apocalypto. 
but my Father in heaven. That's what Jesus said to Peter at Caesarea Philippi in response to Peter's outburst. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Yes, and you are Peter, son of Jonas. And blessed are you. Because the knowledge you have is divinely disclosed. Paul uses the same word, gnorizo. In both Ephesians 1.9 and 3.3. So in that sense, there's a connection between where Paul had written briefly about the the mystery. Now, when he said briefly, he didn't mean briefly in the sense that it doesn't mean much and that he only said a little. Because Ephesians 1, 9 to 11, to me, is the most dense and condensed passage in all the scripture about the totality of the mystery. Ephesians 1, 9 through 11. I haven't even begun to really do it justice exegetically or expositionally. And so where he wrote about it in brief, that means he hadn't fanned it out yet, and it immensely can be fanned out, was Ephesians 1, 9 to 11. So we don't have to think about some hidden or lost epistle. In fact, when Paul said, spoke about an epistle where he made the Corinthians sorrowful in 2 Corinthians, that was merely referring to 1 Corinthians. So we don't have to get mystical about the mystery here. The passage in a very brief section is extremely deep and dense in Ephesians 1, 9 to 11. You can fan it out throughout the entirety of the scriptures. As we said, the Greek Bible begins with NRK, which means in Christ, and ends with Panton, which is all. The whole Bible tells the story in Christ, all. And that's fanned out a little bit in Ephesians 1, 9 to 11. I could spend the rest of my time on earth as a pastor teacher, and teaching is not my primary gift, nor is preaching my primary gift primary gift I have is faith. Have a deep and abiding faith, I was told. And that's never left me. And so this is secondary. But I preach because I believe. I preach because I believe. I preach what I believe. I teach because I believe. Because I believe, I have spoken. I have spoken because I believe. That's 2 Corinthians 4.13. That's the spirit of the prophets. And so it would be terrible to have the gift of teaching, but not have faith and not really there are actually pastors who don't believe what they're teaching I can't I can't fathom that I can't even begin to fathom that I mean is it a job to report things that you don't believe can't believe I I can't I can't believe that but I could spend the rest of my teaching career and I don't see an end to it too soon on these three verses. I've been emphasizing one important distinction within this doctrine of the mystery, though. A very important distinction. The word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. That means it distinguishes things in your mind when the word is rightly divided or orthotically expounded, rightly handled. Fine distinctions are made. There's a fine distinction within this word, the mystery. Because sometimes the mystery is a word, but it's only used for part 
of what the mystery means. And sometimes the mystery means the mystery in toto, the totality of it. And there has to be a distinction. Any distinctions made in the scriptures result in a differentiation of consciousness in you. And therefore a more accurate understanding. And so... I've been emphasizing an important distinction within this doctrine, which leads to a differentiation of consciousness in us. So there is this word mystery when it's used for the mystery in toto, like Ephesians 1.9, speaking of the summation of all things in Christ. But there's the same word mystery as what the Latin would call totem pro parte, which means the whole word mystery is simply used for a part of the mystery. It is where the word mystery is used for only a part of it. For example, the word mystery is used to describe the making of two mutually, formally hostile people groups. And if you want to talk about mutually hostile people groups today, you've got it all over the place in our country. That's why we have such perilous times. It's not because of the political philosophy of one side versus the political philosophy of another side. It's the hostility that's the problem. It's the hatred, the irrational hatred that's the problem. It's eating away at the fabric of a national entity. And so we need a spirit of hope for these perilous times, a spirit of unity for these divisive times. So the mystery speaks of the union or the unifying or the making one of two previously hostile, polarized people groups. And those people groups are Jews and Gentiles at the time of the writing. And of those two polarized, previously mutually hostile people groups, one new humanity was made. One new humanity, Ephesians 2.15. And this was done and created by the death of Christ in which in his flesh on the cross, the enmity was abolished. The enmity was demolished. The enmity was destroyed. According to Ephesians 2.14 and 15. And so, the mystery... Paul would say, I'm speaking to you a mystery. Now Jews and Gentiles are one people group. That's not the whole of the mystery, though. That's just an indicator of the total mystery, which is the summation of every being in Christ, heavens and earth. And may I say, that's not bizarre. In fact, by his death, the enmity was demolished in Christ's flesh, And by the blood of Christ in Ephesians 2.13 and Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.20, he made near or brought near or brought to himself those who were once remote and distant. If I'm lifted up, I will draw all to myself, which is another way of saying by the blood of Christ, those who were remote were brought near. And that's just, that's almost... An understatement brought near means brought into unity with Christ who were once remote. So by the blood of Christ, God has brought the godless, hopeless, Messiah-less 
pagans together with Jews in Christ. That the death of Christ is the basis of the destruction of the enmity, the hostility, and that the blood of Christ is what is at the basis of this union into one new humanity is a strong indicator that the mystery of God's will is achieved only through the death of Christ and that the universal summing up of all things and all beings, rational and otherwise, in Christ, angelic and human and otherwise, is the direct result of the cross of Christ. This is why I call it, by a thousand hints, the doctrine of instauration. I'm going to get into that in earnest and define it some week. Making of the two people groups one new man or one new humanity is not all of the mystery. That's not the mystery in toto. If it were so, then you could say, well, there's a whole lot of people going to be lost. There's a whole lot of creation going to be burned. There's going to be a whole lot of stuff going on. That's, that was the whole of the mystery. Jews and Gentiles is one person, one human, one humanity. Then that would be not so good. It's wonderful in itself, but it's not the mystery in toto. In dispensationalism, where I was rooted for several years, I thought that was the whole of the mystery. I thought the whole of the mystery was Jew and Gentile, one in Christ. And therefore, I didn't see beyond that horizon. And that's the problem with dispensationalism. They have a very narrow horizon. I can say because I've been there. I'm not criticizing them. I've been there. They're on a rapture watch. And they're looking for things that are just aren't going to happen. And they're putting forth a hope that's going to be discouraged and already is discouraged among their disciples. There's a bigger horizon than that. And the horizon is the horizon of the impact of the cross of Christ, which is universal and diachronic. It's not only universal spatially speaking, it's diachronic temporally speaking goes back and recovers all of human history and redeems it, all of it. Only God would do something that complete. So this one new humanity in Christ has been done by the death of Christ in which the enmity was demolished. And by the blood of Christ, those who were remote are now near. The death of Christ is the basis of the destruction of the enmity or hostility. The blood of Christ is what is at the basis of the union of this new humanity. And that's a strong indicator that the mystery of God's will in its totality is going to be instauration, the result of the cross, the universal impact of the cross. So making of two people groups one new humanity is not all the mystery. It's wonderful in itself. One new humanity not only refers to Jews and Gentiles as one, but also male and female, slaves and free persons, barbarian, savage, or Scythian. And we would add for our own time, black and white and red or other artificial distinctions of humanity. I said artificial distinctions of humanity are now eradicated in one 
new humanity. One may identify, and that's a big word now, as one thing or another, one race or another. Someone might want to get a little bit off on their tuition, so they desperately hope they're a Cherokee or an Apache or an indigenous person. Or they may identify as something that maybe they are in their heritage and maybe they aren't in their heritage, but it's this desperate search for identity to identify as somebody or something or some class. But God identifies all in Christ. In fact, God identifies all as Christ. You ever hear the gospel? of the glory of the Christ, who is the image of God. Let us make humanity in our image, and our image happens to be Christ, imago dei. So Christ is not just a corporeal person, born of a virgin, obedient to the Father in every way, to the extent of death by crucifixion. Christ is also a corporate person, And ultimately, he will comprise all of created reality in himself, even as he already comprises all of uncreated reality in himself bodily. Colossians 3.11 says it marvelously. Here, meaning in this new humanity, referring back to verse 10, there is not Greek versus Jew. Circumcision versus uncircumcision. There is not barbarian, quotes, savage, quotes, slave versus free. But Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. The preview of Christ comprising all reality is Christ comprising all the people in him, awakened by faith, sealed by the spirit into an organic union with Christ and who know it. But it's not the mystery in toto as wonderful as it is. Colossians 3.11, Christ is all and in all is just a preview of God being all and in all in 1 Corinthians 15.28 when the son presents himself to the father and with himself all of the created reality that he has redeemed including the enemies over whom he has ruled and subjugated under his feet. It's not the mystery in toto. So in the case of the union of Jews and Gentiles, now you say, I'm not really entertained by this message. No, you're not entertained by this. You know what's happening. An operation is happening in you that's distinguishing an aspect of the mystery from another and therefore is differentiating your consciousness. It's done by a very sharp blade. I made up my mind a long time ago. I wasn't going to entertain. I was going to teach. And that isn't popular. Correct, rebuke, reprove. What? Preach the word Be instant and ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, reprove, correct with all long suffering and patience. 
We just don't live in a generation that wants to hear reproof, rebuke, and of all things, correction. The union of Jews and Gentiles in Christ, a single humanity, describes but a part of the mystery. A part of the mystery, and that you know what that does? Once you get this distinction in your consciousness, you realize you're not really that hot. You're not really all that. The church isn't really all that, which turns off people left and right because they present themselves as being all that. We're just a provisional thing, a prolepsis, a preview. And that's all, we're only a preview when we're functional in love, not just when we confess Jesus Christ. When we're functional in the love of God that's poured out in our hearts, then we're a prolepsis and a preview. Of the universal, another word, perichoresis. So this one new humanity is the indicator in the world today and only where it is functional as the household of Christ, as Hebrews 3, 1 to 6 says. Only when it's functional as people in companionship with Christ who manifest the life of Jesus in their mortal bodies, even only then is the church an indicator of the coming universal perichoresis, another word, P-E-R-I-C-H-O-R-E-S-I-S which is God in the universe and the universe in God. Jürgen Moltmann, and I just had his latest book dropped on my porch today. They actually deliver on Sundays. Called The Spirit of Hope. Jürgen Moltmann revived the patristic term perichoresis. I'm doing this very gradually developing this now because it's important that we understand these things. These are the basis of your hope in life. Perichoresis, pretty common word with Gregory of Nazianzus, and it was crystallized in John the Damascene or the Damascus theologian named John in the 7th century. But Jürgen Moltmann revived this patristic term perichoresis, among other places, in a paper that he delivered at St. Andrews in Scotland in a conference on Christian theology and the Gospel of John. He was expounding on and Richard Bauckham, who edited the whole thing and hosted the whole thing, said Bauckham's, or rather Moltmann's and Martin Hengel's two messages were the highlight. He said they were the phenomenal highlight of the conference. Moltmann was expounding on John seventeen twenty one, where Jesus said to the Father that they may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. May they also be one in us. Moltmann said on this exposition, quote, The unity of Jesus, the Son of the Father, and God, the Father of Jesus, is not an exclusive and closed unity, like a circle or a triangle, often used in the tradition as symbols of the divine trinity. It is a wide-open, inviting, and integrating unity, the perichoretic unity of the divine persons and spaces is so wide open that the whole world can find room and rest 
and the fullness of eternal life within it. All creatures can enter into God, I would add, will enter into God, to find their freedom and living space and home in the Trinity. The divine Trinity is not open because it's imperfect, but by virtue of graciously overflowing love. The Trinitarian God is the redeeming broad room for all creatures and the life space for all living beings. May they also be in us. Emphasis on in us. The triune God is not only the three personal God, but much more the threefold divine space for the indwelling of all the creatures. And at the conclusion of this contribution, which Bauckham could only say was a mature contribution of this conference, Moltmann said this. In summary, I would answer the old rabbinic question, question asked by the ancient rabbis in this way. The redeemed creation will find in God its living space, and God will find God's living space in the redeemed creation. The word lives or the world lives in God in a world-like way, and God lives in the world in a God-like way. They interpenetrate each other without destroying each other. This is the eschatological perichoresis of God and the world, of heaven and earth, of time and eternity. It is there that all eschatology of history and creation ends in the eternal joy of God over his responsive creation and in the Trinitarian doxology of all creatures. These kind of things humble me when I realize the messages I proclaimed. I realize that Hebrews, the epistle, Hebrews, was a sermon. It takes about 45 to 50 minutes to read it. It was a sermon by a pastor. The preparation that went into it, the structure, the chiasmic structure of it, which was absolutely ingenious, the research of the scriptures, the picking of the precisely perfect verses to cite in the exaltation of the Son of God, the way it was developed into 13 chapters and the way he concluded it by simply calling it a word of exhortation as a pastor. That humbled the daylights out of me. I said, Hebrews is a sermon? But it opened up a whole world to me, though, that we can be creative and go off a certain verse and develop something like Hebrews every time we teach, every time we meet. That's a challenge. That's a big one. And without him, I can't do it. But with him, hey. So in closing, is it closing time? Closing time. Again, the main point of the doctrine of the mystery series is that God has made known to us the mystery of his will. And the mystery of his will is to sum up or recapitulate, that's what Irenaeus called it, all things and beings in Christ, the son of his love, as he's called in Colossians 1.13, and the head of all things, as he's called in Ephesians 1.22. This recapitulation is also known as the universal perichoresis, 
as we just saw. It's also known as apocatastasis. It's also known as palingenesia. Jesus called it that. Pollen again, genesia, Genesis. And again, Genesis. In Matthew 19, 28. Apocatastasis in Acts 3, 21. It's called the reconciliation of all things in the heavens and on earth. Thrones, occupiers of thrones in the heavens, the principal angels, dominions, holders of dominions, all the way down to all human beings. The reconciliation of all things in Colossians 1.20. The new creation of all things in Revelation 21.5. Whatever name is hung on this great mystery, who can hang a name? Uh, never mind. Ruby Tuesday, that, never mind. Whatever name is hung on this event, it's achieved only by the impact of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, that which I call the instauration. Regarding this impact of the cross, the patristic theologian origin, Ilaria Ramelli, is single-handedly responsible for recovering his reputation because he was, well, any good theologian will be maligned or they're not worth their salt. But she recovered his reputation. Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N. In his commentary in Romans section 4, 10, captured not only the universal but also the diachronic effect. Diachronic means throughout all of time, capturing, gathering up all time past, gathering up all time future in the cross of Jesus Christ. He captured not only the spatial, but the diachronic aspect of the cross in his writings. And in fact, I call it the redemptive effect throughout all of time and history of the cross of Christ. This is what he wrote, Origen. I do not deny in the least that the rational nature will always keep its free will. And I agree with that. I'll be teaching on that in the future. But I declare that the power and effectiveness of Christ's cross and of his death, which he took upon himself toward the end of the aeons, are so great as to be enough to set right and save not only the present and the future aeon, but also all of the past ones. And not only this order of us humans, but also the heavenly orders and powers. Now that pretty much wrapped around the whole of the mystery right there. Origin. And the book, which unfortunately the publishers in the Netherlands, I think they are, charge a whole lot for that book. I hope somebody else publishes the Christian doctrine of apocatastasis by Ilaria Ramelli. She captures all of Origen and all of his followers, all of whom spoke in their patristic writings of the apocatastasis pantone. And that should be the way it is because all of the prophets before the patristic authors and the apostles all of the prophets, univocally, with one voice, God spoke in them always of the apocatastasis pantone, the restoration of everything. That's the whole of the message of the prophets. But we, we only look at the 
infinitesimal details, the judgment of this nation or the judgment of Israel at this point or this happening or that happening, but we fail to see that the whole message is about the restoration of everything. And it'll happen when this same Jesus, whom you've seen ascending to heaven, returns. As the angel said in Acts. So the mystery, to mysterion, in toto, the totality of the mystery, is about this universal diachronic reality. It is the reality that is Jesus. Jesus is this whole reality. The resin Christ is the depiction of the reality of the future universe. He is the future of the universe. Alive, healthy, well, rejoicing, loving God, loving people. Jesus is the peace that Yahweh speaks to his people. Put Ephesians 2.14 together with Psalm 85.8. Universal salvation, don't be afraid of the term, is a necessity of the mystery. You can't have the summation of all creaturely reality in Christ without universal salvation. Universal salvation is a little piece of the mystery, but it's a necessary piece. You can't get away from it. I couldn't escape that if I wanted to disprove it. And I did want to disprove it for many years. But God dragged me to his school. He said, sit down and learn from me. Don't learn from dear old Dr. So-and-so or dear old so-and-so or professor so-and-so or theologian this or theologian that. Although you can learn a lot from the men I've taught. And the women I've taught. But you can't do anything without me. Universal salvation is a requirement of the mystery of the gospel. And if someone preaches, and this is the point, the exhortation point I want to bring. If someone preaches what they call the gospel. And their preaching never involves the mystery. Then it is at best an incomplete proclamation. I'll say it again. Any effective proclaiming or preaching of Jesus Christ today, today, has to be the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, Romans 16, 25. Only this message can counteract and defeat the coming revolution against the Bible that has already begun, but it's going to take on a militant earnestness in our culture only this message can counteract and defeat this upcoming revolution against the bible that is brewing in the up-and-coming generations it's a revolution that is in part due to the bible's mishandling misrepresentation and misapplication where the mystery in toto is most clearly intended is Romans 16:25 to 27 and Ephesians 1, 9 to 11. Become familiar with those passages. Romans 16:25 to 27, which I consider to be a postscript or summation of all of Paul's epistles. And Ephesians 1, 9 to 11, which I consider to be the primal message of Paul's epistle. And also in Ephesians 3, 9 to 11. 
The mystery in toto, the mystery in toto is the subject learned by angels. Angels go to school to learn of the manifold saving wisdom of God through the church. So it's fair to say, and possibly I would dare to say, that angels are present in this congregation today. Angels desire to peer into this, said Peter in 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. And Ephesians 3.10 says, this is the mystery that angels desire to look at. Why do angels desire to look into it? Because they're going to be part of the salvation and the reconciliation of everything in the heavens and on earth. They want to know too. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and to an innumerable company of angels. You're going to have angels at your social occasions in the city. And so let's close by looking at Ephesians 3, 4. I'll do some exegesis here. He uses the word, when you read, that means when you read Ephesians, you will understand my insight. Imagine coming up to Paul's own insight into this mystery. That's our goal. Look at what it says in Ephesians 3, 4. When you investigate this thoroughly, the word read is anagenosko in Ephesians 3, 4. Anagenosko. It doesn't just mean to skim it. I read Ephesians. I didn't find out mystery. That reveals a lot about you, not much about Ephesians. It means to peruse, to read carefully and thoroughly and to scrutinize That's what we're doing in the doctrine of the mystery. Joseph Thayer goes even further in the 1800s, and he defined it in his lexicon, the word read, as to distinguish between. Just what we're doing today. To recognize, to know accurately, to acknowledge. So we're distinguishing today between the word mystery when it speaks only of a part of the mystery And the word mystery, when it clearly speaks of the total mystery, the mystery in toto. So when you investigate this thoroughly, I would translate this in verse 4, you will be able to perceive my insight, Paul's own insight, into the mystery of Christ. In past generations, it was not made known. There it is again, norizo, our key word for today, our key Greek word. It was not made known. To the sons of men, that is, to human beings at all. As it is now, noon, revealed, apocalypto, to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Which is that, verse 6, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow body members, and fellow sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus. That being the singular seed of Abraham, Christ Jesus, through the gospel. Of which I was made an agent according to the free gift of the grace of God that was given to me by the operation of his power. To me, exclamation point, the least of the saints, double exclamation point, this grace was given to proclaim the good news of the incomprehensible wealth of Christ, in verse 9, and to enlighten everyone about the household administration. That means Gingrich says in his lexicon, the plan of salvation, I would say, to enlighten everyone about the universal plan of salvation of the mystery, which was hidden. The opposite of apocalypto is apocrypto, 
where we get the word cryptic, was hidden, apocrypto, and it's, it was divinely concealed by God who created all beings by Jesus Christ. Here again, the mystery in toto is distinguished from the part or the prolepsis of the mystery, which is simply the union of Jews and Gentiles in Christ. So look at verse 10 of Ephesians 3. So that now the rulers and authorities in the heavens, those are the principal angelic beings corresponding to the human apostles and prophets in the human race, the principal angels may have made known to them, Norizo again, made known to them through the church, through us, the manifold saving wisdom of God. The wisdom of God means his saving wisdom in accordance with the purpose of the ages which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord, the principal angels have this salvific purpose in Christ Jesus made known to them. That's the big question I had to ask one day. Don't be bizarre, Rick. I was just asking, will the angels also participate in the redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ? Didn't get the question out. And I know that's because I was supposed to discover for myself. Yes, they are. They are part of the instauration, the reconciliation of all beings in the heavens and on earth, whether principalities and powers, occupiers of thrones or holders of dominion, invisible or visible, by the peace that God made by the blood of Christ's cross, are to be reconciled not only to God, but to one another. Colossians 1.16 and 1.20. God accomplished this in Christ Jesus, and guess what? The signal of its accomplishment is this word called tetelestai, which Jesus didn't say from the cross in Greek. He said more like asa in the Aramaic. It's created. It's done. It's accomplished. It's finished. The impact goes right from there. That's ground zero. The impact goes from there universally. The universal manifestation of this throughout all the creation that came about through Jesus Christ, that creation that came about through him, not one thing ever came into existence without him. Not one thing that ever came into existence through him will be left out of the reconciliation and the restoration and the glorious transfiguration of creation either. So, the universal manifestation of this throughout all of creation awaits his coming. When every eye sees him, every knee bends before him willingly, every tongue gives praise to him, to the glory of God the Father, as all flesh together experiences the salvation of God, which is Yeshua, Jesus himself, the Son of God, who is the radiance of the Father's glory, the impress of the Father's substance, who having made purification for sins has sat down at the right hand of the eternal majesty on high. And from this exalted position, he not only sustains all the universe, but guides everything that happens in it by meticulous providence toward a universally salvific, glorious conclusion. So with all this considered, the last part of Second Chronicles 20.20 is a good verse for 20.20. 20. 
And it's still a powerful promise for us today. Believe in Yahweh, your God, in the Lord, your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. For in for us now, that means have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose faithfulness saves all. And believe his prophets because they have all univocally and without exception spoken of the universal restoration. We're established in the spiritual life by doing the first thing, having faith in the Lord our God. We succeed in spiritual living by doing the second thing, believing what the prophets have said because they've unfolded a universal horizon of salvation and therefore given us the reason for hope, which we ought to have as a contagion in this age. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity to teach meticulously for today was a time of meticulous teaching and of distinction of concepts within the mystery of a differentiation of consciousness in each of us as the saints. May we go forth from here with a new appreciation. May we go forth from here with a new perception of the insight that Paul had into this magnificent mystery. May we see the horizon that not only spans all of time, but expands through all of space, all of the infinite, seeming infinite space of the universe, all of which is going to be gloriously transfigured. And we see even a slight preview of this telescopically, scientifically, but that can't touch what comes without scientific observation the transfiguration that comes with the kingdom of God. So, Father, we enter this new year with confidence, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank